Hello and welcome to the next director-focused episode on the Auto Archives podcast. On this episode, I discuss with comedian, writer, longtime friend and first-time podcast guest Nathan Roberts as we discuss his favourite directed duo, the Coen Brothers. After sinking through each of their 18 movies, we go into detail about the various genres they work within, some of the recurring cast members they use and their constant balancing of comedy and tragedy throughout their films. As per the previous episodes, we follow up this discussion with sharing our least favourite movie, as well as comparing our lists of top five favourite movies directed by the Coen Brothers. Warning, this does contain spoilers for most of the Coen Brothers movies. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Nathan, thanks for joining the uh, podcast for our episode today. How are we doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thank you. So today uh, we are covering a particular director or directors as part of the Auto Archives uh, episodes. So when I first spoke to you, you and asked you which one you would like to cover, you picked the Coen Brothers. So that's what we're going to talk through today. But just before that, I thought I'd just catch up with you to see what you've been watching sort of movies and TV uh, wise at the moment. So what, anything sort of stood out recently for you? Uh, well, I, I've just been binge watching um, loads of my favorite movies at the moment uh, because, you know, I think like you kind of get distracted, like trying to keep up with new releases and, you know, stay abreast of, you know, what's, what's, what's current, what's coming out. See things you've never seen before that you realize you've gone for years without watching the films that like mean the most to you yeah so um i've just had a big uh sort of revisit of magnolia apocalypse now amadeus like a bunch of great epics nice made by straight white men <laughs> in many ways for straight white men and starring straight white men is a real theme uh, that's good because i mean all those films you've mentioned are like i don't know about you but they were sort of the films that you start as you start getting into really getting into films, they're the they're the go-to ones. So like Apocalypse, like you said, Apocalypse Now and Amadeus, I've I've probably only seen uh, a couple of times, but like years and years and years ago. Mm. So I imagine, do they still hold up for you then? Now watching him relatively recently. Oh, massive! I think they reveal new depths every time I go back to them. But they are. I think they're the films that you watch. When you're, you know, like 15 and an 18 certificate still yeah. felt like dangerous to you. Like I remember like Apocalypse Now felt really dangerous. Magnolia especially, I felt like that was a window into what like grown up life would be like. It felt like looking through an instruction manual for adult life and how <laughs> all the all the fucking nightmares that are going to be laying ahead of you in the future. How to, how to sing a montage in your car like Tom Cruise. <laughs> But it's just one of those films. I don't know if you have a film like this. It'd be interesting to hear if you do. Where, because I, I've seen that so many times. It is my like it's my number one. So I try not to watch it too many times. But because I watched it so many times as a child, it no longer like exists as a film to me anymore. It's almost just like a collection of bits. I still love it, but I can't watch it objectively in the same way I would another film. 
Yeah, I know what you mean. I think for me, I've only I haven't seen Magnolia that much. I think if I was to pick a film that I've seen so much, I think it's probably something like Pulp Fiction, where I've seen it yeah. all the time. Like it was that film that I would watch on repeat on DVD, like you said, just under age to watch it, and like it felt naughty to have seen it underage um, Mate, all i want to feel i just all i want from cinema is to be made to feel naughty yeah that exactly. is my number one desire <laughs> that's exactly it um so i think that's that for me is that film where i've, I've seen it so much and I've, i could just jump in and kind of know where where you know just jump into any part of that film and just carry on i don't it's think it's like listening many, to an album yeah pretty much uh, any track and i can just appreciate it for where it is mm. but um Magnolia is on my list to, in fact, most of um, Anderson's films I want, I need to go back to. I bought Punch Trunk Love very recently and I've only seen that once. I think it was on, probably on the back of seeing, um, watching Uncut Gems again. and just thinking, mm. shit, he, Sandler was good in, uh, so good at Punch Trunk Love, but it's been so long since I've seen it. I'm dying to go into his back catalogue again and and uh, get through his films. Um What's great, because I'm watching them in order. Um, I've, I've missed off Hard Eight just because I've done it. It's, it's fine. It's, it's, <laughs> you don't need to go back to it. It's not going to reveal no. any deaths. It's a good film, no. but it's fine. Yeah. But just to see that evolution, because it's, it's fascinating to watch something like Magnolia and, you know, even Punch Dog Love to some extent and reconcile that with the guy who's made Phantom Thread. Like yeah. they seem like, I mean, there is a clear through line when you go in order. And I think it would be quite interesting to, to chart that. But He's so versatile. It's it's kind of bizarre to see how much his style has changed. Yeah, definitely. And I think that probably feeds in well for this Coen Brothers episode as well. How mm. that, and we'll obviously tackle that in a moment, but how that's changed and developed through their, their career as directors, really. Um, cool. Okay. I'll, I'll quickly talk about Possession. So I know uh, <laughs> <laughs> I kind of seem to be, from what you were saying to me, seem to be the 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 person to have pushed you to finally watch it it sounded like it was on your radar for some time um you just needed that little nudge to go away and watch it so i watched it last week for the first time not knowing that much about it other than it was a, a vid 80s video nasty it was banned for i think it was till like 99 over here mm -hmm. um and it's a it's very hard thing to uh, own on blu-ray or get access to um and as i was saying before it's like i managed to track it down and just thought i need to buy it I need to have that in the collection so now we've both seen it and try not to go too much into spoilers i know we've already had a chat about it but what were your <laughs> thoughts and has that changed since we've last spoken about you know you sat with it for a sort of couple of days yeah, I mean, I, I told you, like, I think I messaged you pretty straight up soon afterwards. I was like, I love it. I don't know the extent to which, I don't know how far my love goes, but I know it's yeah. at a strong level and it's only um, raised in the in the following days since seeing it. I think nice. it's incredible. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because it's, you say it's a video nasty because I always feel like it was kind of thrust into that because to me, it's like more of an art house film. And I think yeah. that's what I feared going into it, um, that it would be, more you know just sort of torture porny exploitational yeah. and just gratuitous um and that i'm not really interested in especially at this time i was like yeah. if 
you know, because I, I know it was a big influence on Gaspar Noé, but I didn't know what side of Gaspar Noé, because Gaspar Noé like has mm. the, you know, like a Kubrickian art house sensibility, but he also has like a real grindhouse, like, yeah, you know, nastiness at the core of him. And I think Possession is way more towards, you know, the, I mean, I think it is really Kubrickian in many ways. Like the way it's shot reminds me a lot of um, A Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Yeah. Like the way the the architecture is framed, it's shot in Berlin and the way like he frames Berlin and sort of like creeps through those hallways really, yeah. really remind me of Clockwork Orange. I just think it's it's an overwhelming experience in the best possible way. It's, a fi- nothing about it should work. <laughs> it's like a film yeah. where kind of everyone is making mistakes, but not so much mistakes, they're making big decisions. And in another film that could read as a mistake, but here they sort of, uh, come together this perfect like chaotic harmony yeah. I feel like it's the cinematic equivalent of Jesus it's just <laughs> chaos it's something that shouldn't work but it's just this bellow of rage that just stays with you everything's just so heightened in that film isn't it the performances are purposely over the top it just makes everything else around it just so heightened and so intense and so on edge that it is it's an uncomfortable uh, film to watch really I, I agree with you I, I thought I was going into this film thinking it's just going to be like you said torture porn and just shock value for the sake of it but there's mm. so much more going on and there's so much more to read into and it's it's interesting to kind of go away sit with it for a couple of days read up and watch some analysis videos of what people have interpreted the, the film or certain scenes especially that that subway scene which is is up there for me as one of those fil- one of those scenes where it's like I paused that once it finished and was like I need to kind of c- come down from that because it's so intense <laughs> and uh, nothing is said for it's like seven minutes I think that scene is mm. and how it ends as well which I won't I won't say in case anyone listening wants to see that it's so oh shocking God. it's just like what I think I did I did watch it again just that scene just be like. I don't know why, to be fair. It was just like, I've never, I've never, it's very rare a, a scene in a film will make, will stun me as much as that. Mm. As is like the, the acting and, and what it represents. And then, you know, after watching and hearing about different views on that particular scene, you kind of come to your own conclusion on what, what that was. But um, yeah, I, it's one of those films that, uh, I don't know if I'd rush back to watch the full thing. I'd have it's it's still you know very much in my mind. So I for that reason I'm I'm happy to just keep it there for now and, and not watch it again. But not because it's a bad film. It's just it's a very intense thing to sit through again. I think. Yeah, it's a tough world to return to. I watched it with my girlfriend actually, and she loved it. I was, I was like, this is a real oh, roll of the dice. This is <laughs> but like, but she loved it. But I th- it just reminded me of. Um, in the best possible way of a razor head in that it's a film that, you know, I, I don't fully understand really what is going on. I don't think anyone can claim to do that, but there is this feeling of a clarity of vision. That means you, you trust it, even though you could say there are sort of elements that maybe could count as a, I don't, I don't think even, even think plot hole is the right word. Things that I have not like, you know, come to my own conclusion about yet, but I like that it, has such longevity like it's cast a real shadow on me yeah and it's a film that I want to it's one of those things it's a film I watch I'm like I am going to have a relationship with this probably that for like the rest of my life like I will yeah. come back to this every like you know maybe 10 years or something 
yeah, it's going to rest. You're going to wrestle with it as to, yeah, what does that mean? What do these, what do these scenes mean? What is it trying to tell me? Um, it's definitely, this is why I loved it because it's the films that, re, and I, I don't want to speak for you, but I imagine it might be the same for you is the films where you come away and there's just, it sits with you for so long and there's so many questions in your head and, you know, you want to revisit elements of it to see if, you know, that, that strand you might have in your head as to what it's trying to tell you is correct or is on the right lines. The fact that it's, it come up, I come away from it and was just, because yeah, like I said, I've already said, sat with me for so long. That to me is a sign of a great film. It's not, it's not, I imagine it is not a film that most people would just go watch it and, and forget about it. It's gonna, it's even if it's just that you're not, even if it's just that you, you've seen something now that you've not seen before, um, mm. it's gonna stick with you regardless, I think. Yeah, it's impossible to come away from that and feel nothing. If you come away from that and feel nothing, you are a android. That's like the Blade yeah. Runner test, like the turtle on its back. They show you possession. If you don't like, <laughs> if you feel zero, then you have to be sent straight to a scrapyard. Yeah, that's that's fair. Yeah, that's, that sounds about right. Uh, cool. Okay, right. So we'll go on to Cohen then. So like, as I said at the start, um, when I said to you about having you on as an episode to discuss a particular director or directors, uh, Cohen Brothers seemed to be the one that you jumped at the opportunity to to mention so just wanted to get some thoughts from you about what is it you like about the Coens and um obviously we'll go into their films in a bit more detail in a moment but what is it about the Coens that that made you say their their names first on this I think it's the diversity in their work um <laughs> well as far as genre goes I don't think it's <laughs> that diverse apart from that but I think, you know, you can look at a director like, uh, let's say, Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, Hanukkah, you know, um, and I think if you're going to do a list, mainly the big hitters will be the same, I think. But with the Coens, I don't think there's not a clear number one. Mm. And I think they're one of the few directors to not have that. Yeah. And I, what I like about the Coens is I think you can kind of understand a little bit about who a person is by the films that they gravitate towards. Because I think there are four, there are like four categories of Cohen film. There's they're the Westerns, there's the Noirs, there are the existential uh, dramas, and there are the uh, comedies. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting to me to see which, like who gravitates towards who. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, I was thinking the same thing and watching these through again, and kind of just jumping around the filmography, not in any particular chronological order or any order, really, just on a whim. Um, those strands, you can, there's a, there are, like you said, there are strands throughout those films that you can pick up and kind of, in a sense, pick up that it's a Cohen film. Um, mm. But like you said, they, the genres just jump around. And I think that is exciting for me as a uh, as a as someone watching a, a director's back catalogue, that they can feel comfortable in straying away or not uh, sticking with a particular genre because it's comfortable. They're, they're happy to kind of try different things. Like even a remake such as The Lady Killers, which um, I was a big fan of the original to kind of just, just do that. And uh, a next one, do a rom-com and, and all these other things that I, they kind of, change your expectations of what the next film is they're gonna they're gonna do i'm intrigued mm. to see what they do do next obviously uh, buster scruggs 
in it in itself again i think this was the first time i watched it as part of this sort of homework um and in, in and of itself i was like i, I couldn't have pictured a coen brothers doing sort of an anthology film but it but it works so i just i'm just always intrigued to see what they're going to do next um but yeah it's, it's definitely well we'll go into uh our least favorite now and then because I'm, I'm just dying to get into our our top fives to see because there are you know there are 18 films so i have a feeling that we may have a slight overlap on some films but have some films that are, we match on but mm. i know from previous conversations with you there are some that you do like that i dislike so i'm intrigued to get to that but before we do the top five then not so not necessarily your worst cohen's film but your least favorite if you had to pick one what would be your least favorite Oh, no, I'm happy to say least favorite and worst um, is for me hard hell Caesar. Oh, thank hell God! Caesar is a thank swing and a miss of epic proportions. It is trash. It is. Yes. I've got. I've, do you know what? Do you know what's so bad? Because it had potential. I think if the film, like the Lady Killers, is it's a remake. It's bad. It's going to be bad. You're yep. taking a quintessentially English story. You're trans. You're you're, you're putting a different location. Is gone. That Ealing essence is gone. So that's going to be bad. Hell Caesar, that should have been a home run for them. It's, I, I'm so glad you said this because I've, I, um, I've put this as my worst as well. Um, I, I actually walked out of the screening of this when I saw a cinema. I, really? Yeah. What scene? I was, um, was it when the anti-communist critic came in? You're like, I'm not going to sit here and listen to the Cohen's <laughs> bad mouth communists. <laughs> Uh, yes. <laughs> um, no, I think it was, it was a, it was probably about halfway through. I think it was just after Channing, da Channing Tatum was doing his dance routine, which, which isn't bad. It's just, I think I just got to a point. It's like, what is happening? What is going on? It's all these smash of genres getting thrown in, but I couldn't for the life of me see the thread between them all. And mm. again, you've got a stellar cast and you've got so many returning Cohen actors and actresses in there and some new ones as well um and, it, and that was i guess the appeal is well sometimes it's good and bad if you have a stellar cast you kind of expect it to be you know good in a sense but sometimes it's a bit too much it it kills it for me slightly because it's just like we're waiting for the next big actor and actress to come in and and steal that particular scene but i mean so i watched it again now and this being the second time and sat through it all and it yeah it's still bad it just it it still has Cohen traits in there it has that sort of dialogue in there as well um but yeah the the main thing that I really disliked about it is just it's got you know it's got musical elements it's got the epic uh, Caesar you know biopics stuff in there as well um uh, mu yeah musical and then you've got the whole like old hollywood with scarlett johansson in this like mermaid outfit that they've reversed they do that reverse shot when she comes out the water and mm -hmm. none of it i just didn't nothing i could pull out of that and thought it was good it was well, just they're not telling really a story poor. no i think that's what there are great moments i think the, i think the performances for the most part are really strong i think josh brolin gives a really interesting physical performance i think ray fines crushes it Yes. Um, I really like the account of the young the actor that Ray Fiennes is playing against in that scene. The yeah, I can't remember his name, but he, yeah, he's he playing the cowboy sort of Hollywood actor, mm. isn't he? Yeah, 
trying to be but straight. But no one has anything to do. And I yeah. think you, for me, my when I watched it, I got really excited when they introduced this sort of cabal of communist screenwriters. And I think, because I think communism and, you know, the political interference in Hollywood in that period in film history is so rich in story potential. And it's mm. so fascinating. And really, it becomes clear pretty quickly the Coens aren't, interested in it they just want a very thin narrative to hang together so that they can do explosive set pieces which yeah. is fine and but the thing is with the coens i forgive them for it i'm like oh i'm happy for you to make a dud because you're pretty prolific and in a couple of years you're going to bash out a masterpiece yeah so cool this is a dud in three, in three years time we're going to get i don't know raising arizona two fair <laughs> enough I, I can live with that yeah i i, I would agree with that is it's there are Throughout their filmography, there are a couple of hit and misses for me. And it's a, you're right, there's a much more of a hit ratio leaning towards hits than misses. But yeah, I'm the same with you. If I can let this one go, because I know, you know, we'll come onto our top fives in a, in a moment, but that there's bound to be another big, big one out there, um, not far away. I don't know if they've announced anything just yet on what they're working on after Buster Scruggs. Uh, Joel's, Joel's going solo. He's doing Macbeth with Ooh. Denzel Washington. So it's the first time he's uh, away from Ethan, which mm. I got to say, could not give less of a shit about. <laughs> I, I like, I don't care. I want to see them together. Like, <laughs> I've I'm not going to listen to a Garfunkel album. Like, no one cares. not that he's the Garfunkel necessarily, but like, yeah, I don't know. I feel, and also I, I don't like Macbeth that much. That's just a personal preference, but yeah, yeah I don't know. I feel the idea of, Joe Cohen doing Shakespeare. I don't see the point. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see now he, if he does go on his own, what that is going to look like. You know, is it going to feel the same as a Cohen's film? I know it's a Shakespeare, uh, you know, it's Macbeth. I don't know if they're going to put a quote marks Cohen stamp on it. Um, be interesting to see how, if he just goes, if he does go solo, if that's going to be a thing that he does on the side as well as doubling up with his uh, brother on it as well. But I think it's yeah. an aside. I think it will be like, you I know, you. Sort of to Tom back. York's solo album. Just like, I'm just, I've just got this extra stuff that's not really right yeah. for the band. So let's, I'll, I'll go off and do this. Although Francis McDormand is playing Lady Macbeth, which is, mm. it's kind of cool. I don't know. I just think it's quite like a, you don't sound sold on it. Yeah. You don't. No, yeah, I, even that, like, I start trying to convince myself. No, I don't give a shit. I, I'm not interested <laughs> at all. Nice. Yeah, well, I, I mean, we're, we're going to see it, let's be honest. But I am oh, going see in trepidatious. Yeah, definitely. Right, okay. So let's go into our top fives then. So I'll start with my number five. So I, firstly, I loved going through these again. Uh, there are some I didn't rewatch again because... Uh, like I said to you sort of off this, I know where I stand with those films, whether it's I mm. dislike them or, or like them so much, or I've seen them so much. Uh, I, so I haven't watched the whole 18 films in prep for this, but I've managed to get through everything that I wanted to rewatch again. I, I really struggled with, I think the top three, uh, the ordering, there was always going to be those, these top three, but the ordering was, I was struggled with, but number five, I really struggled with, what to put here. Um, so before we get to your five, is there mm. any, will this reveal, 
I was going to say, is there, are there any films that like you have re-evaluated? Actually, we'll do that afterwards because I, I don't want to spoil. Well, no, I'll, I'll, I guess we'll say that as on each ent- in each entry where I stood with it before, I guess, and then mm. see where I uh, stand now with it. So I don't know how you're going to feel about my first uh, entry, <laughs> but I guess we'll find out. So my number five is their first film blood simple great great entry i think um blood simple is an incredible film and one of the best debuts i think ever i think i have a soft spot for debut films especially when they're done really well Mm. um and this this just literally what you just said about sort of turning a 180 on it uh i've still got an old dvd box set which had because i think blood simple on its own is quite hard to own i think it always seems to be part of a box set and i remember mm. it, so the box that i've got it's got blood simple hudsucker proxy big lebowski and barton fink on there and i remember knowing about the other three films and blood simple i i hadn't heard of or certainly at the time i bought it years and years and years ago um and watching it again i kind of knew the basic plot but i just didn't realize how good it was until i watched it uh, sort of the second, only the second time round, but it's such a great debut. Um, and obviously started the relationship with Francis, Francis McDormand again, that mm. has seems to be a recurring character, actress or actress, sorry, that, that throughout their films, which they developed throughout their career, I guess, of several actors they seem to keep going back to. Well, were they married then? Because you know, they're, they're married. So I don't know if. No, I don't know. I'm not met. sure. Yeah, it probably was. Um, but yeah, I, I I wasn't sure where they were at that point. Um, but I just love the story. And I think it really sets the tone of future Coen Brothers films as to what... It's very subtle here, but it's got that film noir story that they use quite a lot. Not so much mm. the style of film noir, but the the... The, the, the plot and I guess the story of itself um, that it kind of like a, a plan that goes awry and it just escalates and it just you know I will cover the other films that I think it it, it inspires sort of from their own filmography later on but I think it's just a great uh, great debut and reading into it afterwards I did realize this was a double bill on release with Evil Dead Sam Raimi's Evil Dead oh really yeah so that would have been a a brilliant double bill because I guess it, it kind of struck me weird at first because obviously Evil Dead is genre wise is miles away from what this is but I think Blood Simple was put across as an exploitation film and I think if you saw a trailer of it it does come across as that but it's much mm. more than that I don't think it is when you fully watch the film I don't think it is an exploitation film it is a just really good uh noir slash thriller story that's told on a texas backdrop and it's got really good performances and a and a not the full way through but a decent soundtrack as well the way they use that four top song i think is brilliant especially for the last ending uh that's the thing it's yeah. so confident and i think and you say like you know they're introducing their noir aesthetic and i think they're introducing they're introducing what they're flavor of noir is because mm. i think blood simple is taken from red harvest by dashiell hammett mm. who well that the book was inspiration i think loosely for miller's crossing um i mean 
it's one of those things like I think you look at a lot of debuts you mentioned uh, I mentioned a hard eight earlier by mm. Paul Thomas Anderson and that's that's a, that's a sort of debut but it lacks like it lacks something it lacks that like you know that which probably was due to studio interference and in this you don't feel any interference you feel two no. directors arriving fully formed and I think two scenes really capitalize that uh, really uh show that for me and that is the scene with um is it Emmett Walsh, the private eye in his car. Uh, so I, I think the main character is hiring him to like spy on his wife. Yes, and he has this like naked woman doll <laughs> hanging from the, the from the rearview mirror. And he t- he pulls the lever and it starts shaking into like a hula skirt. That's it. And like the boobs start flashing. And he's like, what do you think of that? Pretty neat, huh? Pretty Never wild. Mentioned again. <laughs> Pretty wild. That is so good. That is Cohen's in a nutshell. Yeah. And the scene where... They're going across the bar. The camera's panning across the bar. And there's a drunk laid out over the bar. And the camera just goes over him and carries <laughs> on. That Brilliant. is, that, that's the, the humour is, that's everything you need to know. Yeah. It's this the this sub- is who these guys are. The subtle humour is there. And there's also the other, the other scene that made me smile knowing it's a Cohen uh, subtle humour element again is just after the guy's buried um you know his uh his uh, the guy that they're after he's buried him in this field and he goes to get in his car and drive off and he can't start the engine but the the music's playing like this tense build-up music and as he turns the engine the music cuts out and it's just like that awkward trying to turn over the engine and then he turns the engine on and the music comes in again. And it's just like silly <laughs> things, like really subtle things. But you know that they're, it's the start of them putting these like kind of, they're not in jokes, but they're, they're trying to make light of a serious story because there isn't mm. much comedy in this. Um, but there are these- humor in the margins. Yeah, exactly. There, there are these small set, uh, scenes or small things that you notice that, I guess gets they build up on more and more as they do uh, their films later on. So, also so, so yeah. visually confident like that. I think it's that scene you're talking about. The way the car, um, when it's crashed off into the field, just goes mm. slightly off to the side. It's just framed really beautifully. Yeah, it's you just know that watching it again, knowing now where they are, it's like yeah, you could see that they're on they're on to greatness straight away with their first film. So, mm. so yeah, that's my. That's my number five. Um, what's your number five? Uh, my number five, kind of linked to it as, um, by Dasha Hammer, is Meadows Crossing. Right, okay. Which I think is potentially for a film, for filmmakers who deal in a lot of heavy topics um, existentially, I think it's quite light, but I think it's just a riot. It's plotted so intricately. It's like a it's like a Jenga tower and it just holds together perfectly. And it's just, every character really stands out, especially um, John Turturro's, um, just John Turturro's, John Turturro's performance, I think is up there with one of the best in the current canon, I'd say. Interesting. And okay. I just think it's, I just think it's a blast. It's one of those films I don't have much deep to say about Miller's Crossing, mm. but I think it's just the most fun. Yeah. And I think there are very, it satisfies an itch that very few films do of that prohibition era, speakeasy, fast talking, mm. wisecracking, sort of uh, 
gangsters and dames. I, I, I don't know. I just love the world that it inhabits. And I think the Coen brothers uh, are the perfect filmmakers to inhabit that world. Yeah. I mean, the dialogue is razor sharp. I, I, to this day, wish that people use the term "give me the high hat" more often. I think it's <laughs> it says so much. Is that there are so many times when you're just in a supermarket or you're you're, you're trying to get on the bus. I mean, not at the moment, but like, and someone like wrongs you in a way that you can't really articulate, except other than to say you just gave me the high hat. But you should be able to <laughs> say it to someone. They're like, "Oh, I get that. I'm sorry." It needs to be a. It needs to be a more common phrase. Basically, I, I want it. I want it to come back. <laughs> I think that's a great shout. I. I think I've said on this podcast before, gangster movies in general are a massive soft spot, soft spot for me. They were one of the early genres, you know, even something like Goodfellas, just not a specific time period, but mm. just gangster films in general. I absolutely love them. I do kind of love the whole, like you said, Prohibition, Tommy Gunn, gangster period as well. I just think it's, it's great. And like you said, that. all these, these quick uh, quips and that, you know, fast-paced uh, talking as well i love that period in cinema that they they put across um yeah it's again, great very funny i think yeah. it's, re- it's got some of the funniest moments john polito is incredible um yeah i just also it's weird because i think as you said like um you have an affection for gangster films mm. so do i and i think this is my hot take and i think um, oh, it will be go. proven proven correctly. Oh, it's a hot one, baby. Put on your oven gloves because it's <laughs> is it is piping. It's that I think our generation, the way our generation feels about gangster films, is how boomers and the generation generation before felt about westerns. So I think we have now, yeah, we just like being in that world. We mm. like seeing in the same way they would like seeing strong silent types. We like seeing sort of fucked up protagonists who are mean to their wives that's just something you like being in that yeah. world and i think the irishman has closed that off now and i think the the gangster genre is gonna fade and in about 10 years it will get a, a real new boost to it in terms of the the mafia i mean not gangster movies all exist yeah, but yeah. the italian mafia i think is done but i think something will they'll they'll someone will find a new way to tell a story about that yeah i think they'll get they'll get to a point where that is almost forgotten. I think you're right. Irishman is a great send off for that genre, and it had to be Scorsese and De Niro to do that. Mm. Um, I'll, I'll be. I'm very intrigued by that. That's a really good. Now you've sort of said that. I'm, I'm thinking through it. I think you're right. In perhaps a, a decade's time, someone's going to do like a homage movie to that sort of time in cinema, or or, or just the Italian mafia genre, subgenre of of film. So that'd be interesting. But um yeah, find a new way to frame it. You know, I think there was that big Western revision of 2007. I mean, that was, you know, coming off the heels of things like Deadwood, but, you know, mm. the assassination of Jesse James. Yeah. Stories like that. Um, Three Barrels of... Uh, oh, oh, Kedis yeah. Estrada? I can't That's remember. it. Tommy Lee Jones um, one, yeah. Yeah, but I think there's a, I mean, now even Western Scruggs is quite a prominent genre again. It's had a real resurgence, but 15 years ago, no one gave a shit. No, it was just I think dead. something will happen, something similar will happen with um, Mafia movies. Yeah. I'll be interested to see how that, how that pans out anyway. Nice. Right. That's a good, that is a good chat. It's not in my top. <laughs> such a non-committal like, yeah, so yeah, that'll be interesting when that happens. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> not, not at all. I you genuinely... may as well have been winding up a window as you turned on your engine and drove away. 
Just put that in the edit. Just like just cast Carter screeching away. You struggling no. with the engine the entire time, like that. Yeah. Excuse me a minute. Uh, no, I did. I didn't mean. I didn't mean to sign off like that. But I thought it was a good way to end. Um, but no, yeah. Uh, a good good chapman is crossing. It's not in my top five, but it was very close to it. Um, there are some tough. It's really tough. Sixth place. There were like four films in sixth place, yeah. like <laughs> dying to get in. It's more like, I think it was for tonal diversity. Yeah, I think that's, forward. I've tried to make a more personal list rather than necessarily pick what I think is filmed the best. I've kind of, yeah, I mm. think, like you've just said, a diverse bunch, really. Um, but like you said, if you asked me tomorrow, I think I'd probably changed around the top five, certainly the ordering. Um, mm. it's a, it is a tough one. Um, so for my number four was another film I rewatched and was just so much more impressed with it sort of the second time around. Again, the, a lot of these are only second time viewing. I, I've said before on the podcast, I, I'm not one for rewatching films that much unless it is something like this where I'm like devouring a, a, a director's filmography. Um, but I'm so glad that I got to watch this one again. So my number four is Barton Fink. Wow, um, nice. I absolutely loved watching this again. Uh, it's just, I know what you said about John Tartaro's performance from Cohen's. I, I think this is it, personally. I think because more, maybe more so because he is, you know, front and centre in this film. Uh, I just think he's great. And, and he's... Mm. He's works really well with John Goodman as well, which again, I don't know if I'm going to commit to saying it's his best in the Cohen, Cohen catalogue as well, but it's up there. I think he's absolutely fantastic as the, as the neighbour that's, you don't really know throughout the film where he is because the first time you, is in mentally, because the first time you sort of hear from him, he's he's sobbing next door. And it's almost like a, a laughing sob like you don't know if he's laughing or mm. crying um and he like aggressively storms over because barton thinks has, has called up and the reception said can you tell oh, this guy to be quiet so funny that scene <laughs> you're hearing through the wall <laughs> yeah and it's like hello who said that and it's like all you hear is is this is really well done as well because you the camera just follows the wall doesn't it as mm. in audibly follows his footsteps from to the neighbor's room all the way to Barton's door and he's like knocks aggressively and then John Goodman comes to the door and he's like oh you know I'm really sorry about that um how are you and introduce himself it's such a it's not what you expect and I think that's kind of pretty much that scene kind of sums up this film as well um it, I love it's very I, I don't know about you as well but you can see a lot of Kubrick inspiration by the uh in the cohen's films as well and i think the shining mm. I mean, it's a very sloppy um and easy comparison to make because they're both you know based predominantly in a hotel but i think that is a lot of shining in this as well certainly how they film the corridors um and that sort of because it's almost like the, the hotel in this is is representative of hell because the whole mm. kind of meaning I, I certainly i got from it is he starts off in New York and gets success there and then moves to LA and it's kind of the hell of Hollywood and, you know, how it changes you and, you know, and 
his sort of writing is not what he wanted to do and that sort of thing and I think the hotel kind of represents a kind of hell because it's very hot um there's you know wallpaper peeling off the walls and just this really ghosty feel because there's this really great shot of when he looks down the corridor I think Barton looks down the corridor and all of these all of the uh rooms out the front they've just got their shoes and it's yeah. just as a thing it's just quite eerie because you don't really see anyone you only see John Goodman Steve Buscemi as like the bellboy and the receptionist you don't see anyone in the hotel but you see all these shoes that are you know implying that there's people residing in these rooms but there's there's no one about um it's actually that all aside and you know uh there is plenty to kind of read into it as well it's very funny um I think I messaged you that scene where he 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 bumps into his kind of writing the guy he looks up to <laughs> yeah. from a writer, um, mm. and he's that uh, meets him in the toilet and he's like, oh, "I'm so sort of blown away, like ah, oh, I'm so glad to have met you. I, I loved your work and all this stuff." And he says, "You know, come round and, and and meet me later." And he turns up and he's just his wife or his his I think it's his assistant, but they're kind of you know seeing each other. Um, she answers the door and he's in the background just drunk out of his face going where's my honey (laughs) (laughs) i just found it such a because he's so the scene just prior to that is just really well you know spoken gentleman cut to him just swearing and crashing around in his in his house it's just i thought it was brilliant but yeah it's another film watching it again that i just really really enjoyed it much more than i remembered it before um, but yeah, I don't I know what your thoughts on Barton Sink. I think it's incredible. And I think it is a film that rewards um, repeat viewings because there is so much going on. Yeah. Um, I watched it relatively recently. I watched it, I watched it a couple of months ago. And I think it's maybe the fourth time I've seen it. And it's great watching um, Barton Fink's relationship with John um, Goodman's character play out mm-hmm. because you see him testing him. You see him, you know, when he's telling these stories about his life and then Barton um, just talks over him and he has this look in his eye, he gives him a side eye. And I think there is something so... I love I love the Coen's um, sort of cynical take on Hollywood. And I think that's, again, why I think Hell Caesar was so disappointing because it was mm. a bit um, a bit gummy, had no teeth to it, had no bite. Whereas this, it just, it just regards Hollywood as a cesspit. And I think it has a real disregard for an element of, I say writers, but I think creatives in general, in that like you get caught up in your own mythology. Mm. Like Barton Fink is, that's what I really like about the film. Barton Fink is desperate to tell a story of the streets. He has John Goodman, who is a like uh, endless source of amazing anecdotes, and he ignores him to yeah. talk about the man on the street. I think that's such a fascinating thing to like tap into. I really noticed that this time around, but because it's quite intentionally close together where he keeps interrupting him, especially I think it's like maybe the first conversation or, or the second that you can see John Goodman is initially, so he's just kind of this really nice guy, isn't he? He kind of lets him get away mm. with that interruption and you can just see that he's slowly irritating him. Um, but yeah, I, I made a note, a mental note of that same thing that he's, he is this pool of knowledge that helping him writing, considering he's, He's struggling, you know, he's having sort of writer's block, isn't he? He doesn't know how to start. And mm. he's given him all these anecdotes, like you said, and he just he just cuts him off. Um, 
yeah, I, I think it's just, I think it's it's brilliant. Um, it's a, and also I think there's a lot of, I mean, what really stood out the last watch, just because I think we are experiencing it in the world we live in, is this idea of um, society's either blindness or indifference to the rise of, in this instance, anti-Semitism, but sinister ideologies towards certain religious groups. Like the way that, um, I, I can't think of it, but the, the, the cops, especially in the third act, when they come to speak to uh, Barton, treat him with specific disdain and make anti-Semitic comments. And there is this sense of something is about, something's building here. And I think mm. it's set in, is the war happen? I think the war was about to break. Yeah, because he goes, the, the producer goes to war at the end, right? Mm. And he signs up. That's it, yeah. So yeah, yeah, there's this sense of there is something wicked this way comes. Yeah. And Barton is so caught up in himself that he is not able to see how he factors into this. Definitely. I, I made a, 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 a note of that scene as well because the police sort of turning up is quite jarring as, as well in the sense that <laughs> They are just coming, you know, it's, it's very fast paced because it's like a, there's two like policemen or detectives, aren't they? And they're just barraging him with questions. And Barton is just kind of like, what's going on? Like, and he's so flustered at this point um, that it's just like, it is a bombardment for the viewer as well. It's like, wh where is this all coming from? And mm. uh, it just shows up Barton Fink as a character that does is kind of out of water, uh, a fish out of water, which I think is representative of him as a writer in LA that, he had that one-time success in New York that he's come over to LA to write this wrestling picture. Um, he's, he's really struggling with. Um, and yeah, I, I, yeah, I think, I think it's great. And I think, yeah, is it, watching it again. I just thoroughly enjoyed it much more. And you can see, I think this was out in 91. You can see the, the Cohen's building up their stamp their filmic stamp here mm. uh, and this is just one other one where they're just slowly building up to you know their their big heavy hitters in their career and I think this is a great launch pad for them and yeah like I said at the start a real good performance by Totoro as well and they fucking won the palm door for it which is pretty early on in their career I think this is their mm. second or third film that's wild madness and I do think the just the wallpaper in that hotel room I think is one of the most beautiful wallpapers in <laughs> cinema history and I think it does, I think there's something really fascinating about this idea of living in a society where you are almost like a lobster in hot, you're a lobster in cold water mm. and the hot water's getting hotter and hotter around you until it comes to a boil and then it's too late. And that is Barton's world. The world is getting hot. The hotel is literally mm. getting hot and reaching a fiery crescendo around him. And he's not really paying attention. Yeah, it's just, yeah. There's definitely a lot more to read into. I, I also... I, I love the the ending as well when he's re I know we try not to go into spoilers but I don't think this is a spoiler unless you really know the film but he has this the kind film of, came out 20 years ago yeah there's, there's, there's no also, there's statute of limitations like yeah, it's fine there's also it's just, that you're fair, fair point Bruce Willis is a ghost <laughs> yeah let's get them all out get all the twists out now <laughs> um he he's constantly like looking at this painting of this woman on a beach and it's kind of this this hope and dream i guess and then it cut to him on this on the beach at the end um and seeing this woman almost replicating that that painting that he's been looking at the whole time and it's this classic cohen humor again where the seagull <laughs> flies off and then out of <laughs> shot it just 
drops and plummets into the sea and it's just like yeah this is the dream and actually no bring you back down to reality i thought that's certainly what i got from it but um yeah there's so much to read into it so rich yeah it's a masterpiece that is just that is my six if we were oh, to do a okay that's, that's that was a real tight one nice cool right so that that was my number four what is your number four my four is fargo which Ooh. i think if if the coens i think were to maybe be said to have a all and all out masterpiece i think m- many people would maybe argue that this is maybe the big contender um I, I mean i do think it is a masterpiece i don't know if it's my my favorite of theirs but i just think it's there are so many things about this film which i just admire more and more the just the more i think about it which, uh, just the notion of doing a film noir that is stark white in itself yeah. it's such like a it seems like such a simple idea when you say it aloud but no one did it and it works perfectly and i love a lot of people don't like this i personally do like this i love the sort of misdirect of the opening title cards which set you up to believe that this is a true story yeah i, I, I don't mind it knowing that about it afterwards is um i thought it's quite interesting actually how why they've done it i think it's i think it leads or i think it nods towards something really profound in this idea that this is a true story and it's not it's not the story it's not the plot that is true it is what is being explored here it is something about the innate greed in people the mundanity of evil the uh the way that evil can spring up in anyone anywhere that is a universally true story so i think the film whilst some people see it as a bit of a cheat i think it makes it infinitely more profound to uh put this lens over the film yeah and it's just perfectly structured i just think everything about it every riff it makes on you know uh conventional noir tropes is incredible like if you look at like there's that scene where they're interviewing the guy who's sweeping snow and he's got his big hood up and it's yeah. like that should be like a guy like taking boxes off a crate, like crates of yeah. a truck. Yeah, just you. And every this is like sweeping snow. It, it's <laughs> so funny. Every character is so richly drawn. Again, Steve Buscemi, I think, is yeah strong competition for one of the great Cohen characters in this film. Definitely. I just think every time, and it's a film I was quite cold in the first time I watched it. The first time I watched it, I was like, I, I this is good, but I don't <laughs> see why it's a masterpiece. I, I thought it was quite simple. Um, on first watch but the more i watch it it just reveals new depths francis the warmth of francis madorma's performance the warmth of her relationship with norm i know i love it i love that it's like john carroll lynch playing the only non-psychopath he's ever played i I know i watched it again knowing i've seen this film a lot as it is and it's like oh it's a nice change for him to play someone that isn't a creep slash serial killer Mm. um so yeah i thought this is a nice surprise made a change and these um these amazing diversions like i still don't quite know what the purpose of the scene with mike yamagata is but i love that it exists and i love that it's there for me to think about for as long as i watch that movie i think i think fargo is a perfect film i think it just doesn't it's note perfect so so this is my number 1 <laughs> I really <laughs> so you agree so i agree which is i thought is a good time for me to jump in and say yeah it's my number one um 
I love it. It's, I think the reason why it's my number one, and I think it might be with, with most people's approach to their favorite directors or some of their work. I, this was the first Cohen's film I saw of theirs. Um, hmm. So at this time, I didn't really know. It was on my, you know, early adventure into watching films. So I wasn't aware of the Coen brothers at this point. Um, uh, I've got one of those books. It's like the Thousand and One Movies book. And I remember reading about Fargo and finding it really interesting. And, and, and then you did out. Flubber next, right? And then did... Fargo, then onto Flubber. <laughs> and Flubber would, you know, that's another list. And that Flubber would be number one, Robin Williams. I also one. love how Flubber's got that title credit that says this is based on a true story with <laughs> the names and places have been changed. Yeah, the, the real Flubber isn't green, it's purple. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes you really sick. <laughs> oh, um, shit, what was I talking about? Fargo, yeah, that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, Fargo. Um, was the first uh, that's it yeah thousand one book and read up on Fargo and just found it really interesting and watched it and yeah I, I just absolutely love it um kind of different to you I, I I loved it from first watch really and I've watched it I think as well it's my most watched Coen Brothers film mm. um I think what I like we just said there the, the relationship the um husband and wife relationship that Francis McDormand has is a really warm down to earth, realistic, I'd say. I mean, the comedy of, you know, them saying, yeah, yeah, is the, is the subtle Cohen comedy that they, I think, nail in this film. Like we've said in previous entries already, they, I think for me, Cohen brothers, they, they teeter along the line of comedy and tragedy quite well. Some scenes are tragic with an element of comedy or they flip them the other, the other way. I think this, this deals with it perfectly. I think that uh, is evened out really well in this film. I think William H. Macy is fantastic as that wormy character. Oh, um, so good. I, get I think his performance reveals new depths going forward um, every time I go back yeah, to it as well. It's yeah. He's so just desperate. Yeah, you just don't... You're watching him like you empathize with him, you sympathize with him, but you don't support him because you know mm. what he's doing is wrong and he knows what he's doing is wrong. But I think it's similar in the to harking back to blood simple of this, a plan that goes awry. And this is what I was kind of referencing at that point is this is where it's exacerbated in something like Fargo, where it gets a bit pushed a bit further um, where the, the plan just, goes completely wrong and William H. Macy we're just watching him squirm and struggle throughout the film just it more and more so I mean the scene where he he's like icing his uh, like scraping the ice off his car and he just loses it and just fucking smashes <laughs> around just like I just it's just really stand out and I think it's probably one of his best films I'm thinking more like you know, his appearance in Magnolia as well was almost slightly similar to this i think he seems to fight he seems to do well empathetic sympathetic characters um that they just don't well, seem to get a good cucks. break yeah he's gonna play simpson cucks <laughs> like that's that is, that's who he's been typecast yeah that's yeah that's that's pretty much nailed it yeah um and that also the kurt burwell score i think i was thinking oh, this through stunning. 
I want to say, and you might shoot me down, I want to say from a Coen Brothers perspective is, is probably the most memorable and iconic score. I'm trying to think through the other films, but I'll, if I was to pick a theme or a, 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 a soundtrack or a, a orchestral piece from any of their films, I would, I would pick the Fargo theme that stands out for me. I don't know if any others stick out for you soundtrack wise or they do my favorite is actually my next one but I'm, before i get to that like is, okay I, I i do agree with you 100 that this is the most i think iconic of his work with the cohen's yeah i can't remember have you seen the series at all have you seen any of the series so yeah so yeah i was i was gonna um i'm glad you raised that actually because i've i think i've watched i've definitely watched one and two is three with you mcgregor yeah so that's where i tapped out because i i think i watched a couple of episodes and i I just wasn't feeling it in that series. So uh, have you watched, is it on four now, season four? Uh, yeah, they just did four. Four was a mess. Um, four, oh. four was a, a fascinating mess to see. Um, just, to, I would recommend watching four only analytically. Like if you're right. interested into why, as to why things don't work in right. TV, okay. that's why you'd watch it. I think there's a lot to learn. Um, I think if, if you're a budding writer, the best thing you could watch is Fargo and it teaches you all the perils that you could make that are so easy to make I think it's, right. I think, I think so I think it's a great learning tool apart from that no, no reason to watch it <laughs> it is it is admirably misjudged wow just doesn't doesn't work but um but I think one and two are incredible I think they really yeah. he, he achieved some and in just getting two great series out of that is is a huge achievement i i think i think so yeah the, the odds are stacked against you so much you say you're gonna make a like for noah hall so i'm gonna do a sequel to fargo or tv series of fargo the whole world is like fuck you yeah and i mean I, I was yeah right. i was i was just like why this doesn't need it um but season one i mean martin freeman is william h macy pretty much isn't mm. he it's a very similar thing and it's a very similar plot in that it's just a kind of an innocent, likable guy to a degree, just gets caught up in a mess, and it just that thread just gets pulled and pulled to the point where it's just like he can't escape. And even it's nice to see Billy Bob Thornton in a decent role for a change. I don't, yeah. I can't say I've seen many films of him in to be fair, other than one that's a Coen Brothers film, uh, or a couple actually. Um, but yeah, I think he, um, I think I think I think they're good. I, 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 season two as well, I, I enjoyed, but yeah, season three is where I kind of tapped out because I kind of I wasn't really by because I think you McGregor is a twin or has an identical twin, and it was just getting a bit too much, I think, for me at that point. Yeah, I mean, I don't like you and McGregor that much as an actor, so doubling him is not great. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> that's like the last thing I want. Are you a fan of anime, manga, comic book art and everything in between? Or perhaps know somebody who is? Then make sure to check out the work from Instagram artist NoopsDS on teespring.com where you can purchase some incredible artwork on t-shirts, mugs, stickers, phone cases and much more. Personally, I've bought the t-shirt with the Spider-Man print in black which looks fantastic and is a perfect fit. Various different colours are available and shipping is worldwide. To find out more, head on over to teespring.com 
forward slash doors forward slash noopsds. That's N-O-O-P-S-D-S. And check out all the incredible work on Instagram at noopsds. Links are also available in the episode description. So, okay. So, yeah, Fargo. So, Fargo, you're number four and my number one. So, so that... I'm getting juggled up now. So, that goes on to my number three then. Mm-hmm. So, my number three uh, is a bit of a change from that. Um, for me is... I struggled, like I said, with my top three. I think my number one was always going to be Fargo. But the rest, it was kind of up for up for grabs but my number three is big lebowski nice um it's just i i would firstly say my top three are, are five star 10 out of 10 films and i would i would put big lebowski definitely in that um it's just it's just hilarious it's funny it's got really good plot it's got really good um cast in this it's probably the most quotable coen brothers film as well there's just so many great lines in this. Um, it's got a great soundtrack. Everyone's on top form. Um, I I was begrudged to say John Goodman's best performance was in Barton Fink, but I think he is. Is this heated by this? Like, yeah. yeah, this is. He is the best performance in a film full of great performances. Yeah. I think he so. crushes it here. This is one of the, I think one of the greatest comedy characters of all time. It's just market zero. There's just so many, <laughs> so many great lines. But yeah, I think I think it'd be foolish to say that it would. It, this isn't the the standout role from a Cohen's brother perspective, at least for him. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. Jeff Bridges, even Steve Buscemi in this is just great as that. He seems he does very well, Buscemi in being in just a minor character in Coen Brothers films. Even mm. in Barton Fink, he's that Chip. bellboy. Yeah, he's the, he's the bellboy <laughs> that's kind of just this idiot, I guess. Um, he's, not, he's barely in that film, but he's memorable. And same with this, um, you know, shut the fuck up, Donnie, is pretty much all he gets said at throughout the whole film. <laughs> and the emotional through line, like his, he doesn't do that much, but he's, spoiler it's, it's, i mean yeah, if you listen to the top five of the coens and you've not seen the big lebowski yeah exactly that's your own problem um but when he does it is devastating yeah and he's not had much screen time but there's again he like john carroll lynch and fargo just amidst this warmth you know that he's a good man yeah definitely and i think yeah that that i i, I felt the same that it's almost it's just like a shock death i think as well because he is a a side character and doesn't have many lines in the film when it happens it's like oh shit and it it's almost the same for the dude and walter as well that they they have that same reaction and i guess it also leads into possibly one of the funniest scenes in the film with the ashes (laughs) (laughs) which is just done so well when jeff bridges just sort of standing there like really he's just like so disappointed <laughs> as these ashes are just getting thrown into his face accidentally from the wind but um yeah it was always going to be in my top five i i threw it around the 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 ordering for some time but it's landed at number three but i just think again that the plot is great as well it, it is a film noir it's just done in a hundred percent yeah it's, it's just done in a you know with an uncharacteristic 
lead character in that in that role as the dude. Mm. But I I love that, and I think film noir pops up again throughout um, Coen Brothers films, and in some more obvious than others. But I like I like this. I, I think Coens are great at, at taking a genre and kind of turning it on its head, or at least introducing new elements to it that are refreshing and still work. And I mm. think that Big Lebowski is a really good example of that, of bringing in a lot of film noir tropes and bringing this comedy element into it as well. Even though the, the crazy sort of dreamlike sequences as well, which is fantastic. Um, and it's, like I said, the most quotable Coen Brothers film without a doubt. Um, yeah, I mean, that script is shit hot. And also it's, I think, for me, it gets a lot of points just by virtue of featuring um, Phil Seymour Hoffman. Any film yeah. with Phil Seymour Hoffman is immediately elevated. And his performance is so strange. It's so weak <laughs> and sniveling and I and like so eager to please by like the way he is unable to... Um, he, doesn't, he, he just doesn't really know how to act around yeah. the dude. Yeah, exactly. he's like sort of skirting around him. He he can't challenge. He doesn't have the authority to challenge him. He's trying to like, just he's just so weak and uh, simp like. So That's wet. like, yeah. Like I feel like William and Tracy must have been busy because that was they're like we need a simp. Macy's like I'm sorry, I'm shooting Boogie Nights, but Phil Zimmer Hoffman's <laughs> around. And it's like okay, come along. It's yeah, but it's uh, it's so much fun and it's so easy to watch. It's like I think it's yeah. you know like Miller's Crossing and that like you know it doesn't. I was going to say it doesn't sort of hit heavy themes, but I also think there is something profound about the framing device of, is it the stranger, the Sam Elliott character? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It is kind of a tribute to, I think, stoicism, you know, the dude abides. Like, it's just, yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I and I love, it's got that kind of, when you say about Western as well, it's bringing in a lot of Western trade. You've got that whole tumbleweed thing at the start and that almost Western song as well. It's they bring in, it's a weird thing to bring in, I guess, but yeah, it is, there's a lot of these Western elements in there as well, especially at the start. But I like Sam Elliott's character. Mm. He's, he almost talk, you know, talks to camera and yeah, I don't know. I haven't, I guess, thought into it too much, but it's just a it's just a really nice element to bring in and he you know in, he's also interacting with the dude in the film as well i mean this wasn't one of the films that i i rewatched because i have seen this like, probably probably just as much as fargo um but i it's just great and it is just a, an easy watch and not in a bad way um it's just great fun and also great performance with um, julianne moore as well i think she's, oh, she's great, great in this um but yeah uh yeah loved it i i'll always hold this as a i'd probably say yeah as comedies go i would say this is more comedy yeah it's definitely from the comedy side of the cohen's this is their best i think uh, it just nails it yeah completely 100 percent um but yeah it's the one that i didn't i necessarily i really liked it the first time i saw it but it didn't fully come alive to me until i watched it with um other people mm. It was it was watching with like just a group of friends. I, I, I can't remember when it was, but that's when the film burst open for me. It's like, oh, yeah. this is a communal film. It's this a hangout film. Definitely, yeah, definitely is. Um, but yeah, so that's so that is my number three. 
So I'm conscious that we haven't overlapped any of yours yet. So what have you got as number three? We're not gonna. Uh, <laughs> I'm so confident we're not going to. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe there's one, but my number three. Um, it's, it's funny because you, you mentioned um, a, a rare Billy Bob Thornton performance, rare good Billy Bob Thornton performance in Fargo. For me, my number three is his best, and it's The Man Who Wasn't There, which I think is mind-blowing. For the longest time, this was my number one. Um, wow. I, it blew me away. I think visually, it's their best. Yeah, it's their best-looking film. I think it's one of the best-looking films I've ever seen. The score, this is my number one Cohen score. I think it's phenomenal. I listen to it a lot. I think there's the final um, sound cue in it on, on, on the soundtrack, which is on Spotify, is it's called The Trial of Ed Crane. It's just a beautiful piece of music. I think it's stunning. Um, again, it's, I love it for maybe a lot of the reasons I said I love Fargo. I think it is a fascinating deconstruction of the vibe and aesthetic, more conventional aesthetic of the film noir, but framing mm. it in such a left field way. The idea of a small town guy getting involved in a crime that spars out of control. And in this case, it's blackmail. So he can, uh, he can invest in um, dry cleaning, which <laughs> is so bizarre. And I just, it's, it's kind of hard to, talk about why I love it without giving too much away of it because it's not a film that's really about big plot beats but it has a really particular atmosphere it's yeah. the the film feels like an exhalation of cigarette smoke which is <laughs> yeah. because that's basically what it is it's it's yeah. um a bit of a thought and as Ed Crane just smoking and not saying anything it's I think it's actually a spiritual remake of the Stranger by Camus, and I think what really, re, what really um, struck me about this the first time I saw it is the first time I'd seen one of the existential Coens, um, mm. which I'd, I'd put like Barton Fink in there. I think that's another prime example of existential Coens, and it's just this. I think maybe to sort of follow on from Big Lebowski, this idea of pure stoicism, like Billy Bob Thornton is a man who is watching the world from behind a pane of glass. He is not an active participant in his life. And he just accepts everything that comes with him. He doesn't really fight against it. Mm -hmm. He just keeps trudging forward. And I think there's something quietly profound in that. I, yeah, and there's an element which I won't give away, but a plot beat that reframes how we see, not only the story that's being told, but the but the world we are taking, the world that the film is taking place in, I just think it's, I just think it's a, a, a fucking masterpiece. I just love it. I just, I don't watch it that much because I don't want to, it's one of those films I'm really conscious of uh, watching it to the point of exhaustion. Yeah, I just think it. it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm a sucker for film noirs as well. And I love, I agree, it's one of their best filmed ones as well. And I, that's what I do. I knew, I knew this would be in your list. That's why I, <laughs> subtly mentioned Billy Bob Thorne because I'm sure we've discussed it before and you, you've held this in such high regard um, uh, it didn't quite make my top five but that isn't again not saying that it's a, a bad film it's, it is what it is it's a top five and something couldn't quite make it in but yeah it's, it's, I think it's great he got some great uh, performances with James Gandolfini which was great to see him in this so game. good 
Um, and also, if I, there was um, Scarlett Johansson's in this, right? Yeah. Young Scarlett Johansson. This was so like was, 14, 15. Yeah, I was watching it again. I was just like, oh, there's all these people in this. I forgot about these. I, again, this was a, a very much a, a second watch uh, this time round. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, that's a great shout. I think as well, it's not, it's an under it is an underrated Coen Brothers film. I don't think it gets talked about in the same light as their other films. It seems to, in the general populace, gets lost in the shuffle. Perhaps it's um, been totally forgotten. I don't really know anyone who mentions yeah. it that much. It's it's strange, but I think it will have life. I think it's it's like in their canon, it sits in the same place as like Barry Lyndon does in Kubrick's. Yeah, yeah it's a masterpiece, but it's just you know it's surrounded by other much more bombastic pieces of work yeah i think that that's a fair that's a really good comparison actually that there it is still great it just there is others that 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 are also great that seem to be more in the in the limelight for their filmography than than perhaps this one is Mm. um but yeah no that's a great shout um i do love this film as well and yeah it's a i i like i said i'm an absolute sucker for film noir so anything where people are just smoking a lot and just voiceover i'm i'm there oh, so then that is 99 of this film the other one percent is the credits it is <laughs> so good it's just there's so many images that you just, just want to just want to take and put on your wall it's yeah. just stunningly shot deacons again yeah one of his best i think for me perhaps his deacon's second best work after jesse james i just think it's perfect oh, jesse james love that film yeah, no, that's that's another good shout. I'm glad actually we are not covering the same films. I, I, if only to so we can discuss more of Cohen's back catalogue, if anything. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like it was just the same one every single time. Yeah, my five is blood simple. Me too. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. So, so this is my last entry. So we've already said about my number one. Oh, yeah. So. I my number two I feel could be yours I don't know um but my number two is No Country for Old Men no um it's very close Ooh. very close interesting I, I listed all of them that is my seven um the only thing that stops me putting No Country in my list personally is the presence of Fargo because like I think they right. are quite similar yeah they, they i think they cover both sort of two they, they cover the same themes um but it is incredible yeah i i, so I love good. it i i um initially when seeing this on release at the cinema i was i wasn't a big fan of the ending not the very ending but when josh brolin's character gets killed mm. off in such a anticlimactic way i was i it kind of left on a bum note for me um but but watching this several times now and this being i did watch this again because i wondered if that still held uh sat with me of this this um anticlimactic death but i kind of see it in a different way i i I, it's almost a cycle to uh, a vicious cycle of what josh brolin turns up to at the start of the film where he just turns up to this Mexican standoff basically yeah it's really um, interesting 
and you know we don't know how that happened we never saw how that happened so it's almost like mm. the same as that it's it's coming back round again and Tommy Lee Jones is the overarching character that is seeing this all play out kind of from afar like he's always turning up after the event as well but he's almost the older character that is learning around this this setting of what's going on but I think the main thing to draw from this is Bardem's character of Shigar in this because he's just terrifying and I think is the pure representation of death throughout this film that mm. I didn't pick up the first time round watching this film way back in 2007 and this is why I've, I've put it so high is that you can watch this again and like most other Coen Brothers films that we've discussed already there's so much more going on there's so much more to read into there's so much that other people have read into that you haven't perhaps thought of and then you you watch it again and see things in a completely different light one of the things I I saw someone put a comparison to was almost um Bardem's character being death and and uh the, the comparison they made was to seventh seal where mm. uh death is playing uh chess but in this film he's playing a, a game of chance with the coin and saying call it and using chance to determine whether you live or die and I thought that was a really interesting comparison that, that thematically slightly similar around this this um, this piece around death and representations of death in film. Very different films in the, in their own right. But I thought that was a very interesting observation that that I think does have weight to it. Now watching it back with that in mind, um, I also think it's possibly this is obviously more of a, a straight. Uh, serious film for for Cohen's to to do, say compared to my previous one of Big Lebowski, um, but yeah, I I think it's it's also possibly. I remember seeing this in cinema and genuinely being quite terrified at the scenes, especially there's that scene with that really tense scene. It's absolutely brilliant where Josh Brolin is sort of sitting on the bed and Shigar's coming to the door and he has that. I don't know what it's called but it's the, the cattle oxygen tank that they use to kill yeah. the... Uh, there's probably a name for it, and I, I don't know what it is. But he fires the doorknob, and it hits him, and he fires the gun. And I just think that scene was so loud and so tense and on the edge of your seat. It's, and that whole scene afterwards, you know, it's chasing him through the street at night, and I just think it's brilliant. And, it, and there's so much more depth to it that I wasn't aware of and even now watching it on maybe the fourth or fifth viewing, there's so much more going on to it. And a really good analogy of uh, it's almost religion as well, that that Shigar is also, or Bardem's character is, is the devil. And there's a, a comparison that someone made to say that up until that point, he's felt invincible and untouchable. And there's that scene where, um, I can't remember the actress's name, but it's Josh Brolin's... Um, Kelly McDonald. Yeah, and she confronts him and says, no, you're a liar, I'm not going to play your game. And I think is a, is, a, is an important scene in the sense that uh, Chagall's questioning himself and perhaps he's not as intimidating and terrifying as he, as he thinks he is. And I think 
that leads into it's not and all of this as well isn't force fed to you which i i love i think it, it should be show not tell or you know mm. think not tell and you know think go away and think things through and, and watch it again and the, the kind of interpretation i got from it is that he's it's knocked him slightly and that's when his the, the car crash at the end is quite uh important in the sense that watching it again i realized that he's the one who's going through a green light he's not driven through a red light it's someone else that's driven through that red light so even though he's following this the rules that he keeps referencing in the film like these different rules he can also be damaged by it and i think up until this point he mm. hasn't been damaged and until that he's been questioned by uh josh Brolin's partner or wife i think the wife um he's almost questioning himself and i think that seed of doubt is exacerbated by him having this car crash where he's actually oh i am mortal and oh i i can be damaged and i'm not invincible i just thought again it, it might be reading into it a bit too much but the fact i am reading into it i find really interesting fascinating that there are loads of things that you can interpret and i think someone else had made this comparison of uh, him that Satan in in a in a text uh, in the Bible was almost it was, it has a similar thing that he walks away sort of damaged from a, a particular uh, part of that. But there's just so much to read into it. I think his I think the main thing that is is the representation of death that seems mm. to be more obvious from a, a reading perspective. But that aside, um, there's no music, and I think that is. In obviously intentional and important as well there's no it makes it perhaps more realistic in that sense um there's no all the tension is without music there's no you know build up or anything like that i think that is a key part so there is no soundtrack as such but i think that isn't a detriment i think that is a, a big part of the film as well so yeah it makes it so sparse you're just alone there's no relief from a music cue telling you how to feel you are just left with your primal emotions how you feel in your soul is how you're meant to feel in that moment yeah i think i i, I really think that holds work holds water the idea of um sugar being like this angel of death because i think yeah that's what the film is saying like it's, it's death is coming for all of us and there is no escape from it it's either gonna be a dog chasing you through a river and like take you to bits it's gonna be you yeah. in your hotel room ambushed by a bunch of cartel gangsters or it's going to be tommy lee jones on a ranch waiting yeah waiting for it to finally catch him like death is coming for you and there's no you can run as far or as fast as you like but there's no escape and i think it's and i think that is why it's their darkest film because i think that is they don't they don't sugarcoat that message they just leave you with it yeah they don't Definitely. actually. They don't even give you the. They don't even give you like a sense of closure with the film, really. And I, that's, I think that the abrupt ending of the film, uh, echoes, you know, the, the the abrupt end of a life in many ways. It's like, then he wakes up, end. What yeah. do you want? Yeah, I, you want? I I think that is important. I think it is almost like, life continues, and this is. I think it would be very weird for it have to have a, full stop ending. Do you know, if that makes sense, I, I think it was it works well that it's almost it's it hands it over to you as the viewer and, and interpret it and however you like. But um, 
yeah, I, I think, I think for me personally, this is the one I, I, I felt more obliged to look into and read into more than the other films. Not mm. that there isn't more, you know, stuff to look into with the other films as well, but this one just spoke to be a bit more about what, what are you telling me here and, and being interested to find out what it is or interpret it in a certain way. So I think it's fascinating that it's set in the eighties as well, which isn't really mentioned much, but it's like in the film, it just is, it's just in the background, but it means that it's not a push against a, I mean, you know, Tommy Lee Jones and he's dealing with this idea of a modern evil. And by not having it set in the present, it's not about a recognizable modernity. Mm. It's about the concept of the unknown. And I think it just, it gives everything so much more weight. Yeah. Because I think that is something I think everyone feels as, you know, I think once you, I think maybe past like 25 and start to think that this, the world you're entering into is a lot worse than the one that came before it. And I like the film stance that like, it's not. This Mm. always has happened. There's evil out there. It just wears, it just has different hairstyles. Yeah, exactly. I, I didn't realise, I think I realised more, sorry, that how key Tommy Lee Jones's character is and what he actually brings to it. And it's not it's just... a story for me. It's, yeah. it's, the movie is about him. Exactly. It, yeah, exactly. And it's not what I perhaps first thought the film was on initial viewing of. It's Josh Brolin and Bardem's film. It's not. I think Tommy Lee Jones is bringing a lot more than you think to that film and what mm. his character means than than just a cat and mouse chase film, I think. So I think for me, it is certainly developed from initial viewing as to, and built up as to what this film is. Um, Cause I watched it with, a, I did like a family watch a couple of months ago. I was um, I've just moved house. Um, so I was living with my family at the start of lockdown. And uh, so we watched No Country and at the end, I was like, so what did you think? And my mom just goes, what happened to the money? I was like, okay, you didn't get it. Okay, fair <laughs> enough, uh, that's, that's cool. <laughs> We'll we'll watch Flubber next. We'll, we'll do something, <laughs> something more chill. I think we need to do a review episode of Flubber at some point in the future. <laughs> I'm desperate to go back to it. I want to see that. I think it's. I want to have a possession style relationship with the Flubber, where I go like every ten <laughs> years and see like see get more from it. Genuinely, jokes aside, I I remember this is a massive tangent, but yeah, Robin Williams at that time was like, I want to see every film as a kid that he's in. <laughs> And Flubber being one of it. And I wonder if I was just like, I was at that age, like, it's Robin Williams. I just love him, whatever he does. Or if you go back to him and go, no, this is just shit. This oh, is <laughs> I think it will be nostalgic, but it, it's the Space Jam effect. It's going to be garbage. There's no way. There's no way. I've never heard anyone say, do you know what? Do you know what? Flubber holds up. <laughs> I've never heard anyone say that. Or I've never heard somebody say, should we watch Flubber tonight? I mean, it just doesn't. <laughs> You'd say Mrs. Doubtfire or Jumanji or whatever, but Flubber? Saying do you want to watch Flubber tonight is the stage that precedes smelling toast when you're having a stroke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I better... Yeah, perhaps we better... <laughs> we shouldn't watch Flubber. Although I think that could be that could be hilarious to do so. Just calling out what, what the fuck is what the fuck is this? <laughs> you made a bad choice. Um, just bringing out some bargain bucket ninety nine p DVD of Flubber <laughs> that you just bought out. You just bought from a charity shop that day. That 
oh, I'm, I'm hunting for it now. Blu-ray special edition <laughs> double disc. It's got, it's got to be there. Director's you, commentary. Yeah. <laughs> it, and it's Flubber doing the commentary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Oh, okay. Right. Back on track then. So, but, uh, so that was my, that was my number two. So I'll throw it back to you for your number two and then your number one, because I've, I've done my number one. Oh, so interesting. So I think these will be controversial. I, I'm not sure where you sit with this one, but this was a real toss up. It, it was hard. My one and two were really hard and took, but I made my decision um, uh, three minutes ago. <laughs> so uh, two is a serious man, which I think is for me personally, my favorite Cohen comedy, even though I think it's, it's, it's an existential one, but it's the film. I, I don't think I've ever laughed more in a movie theater than I have to this film. Nice. Cause I went in this, also, this is the, this is a kind of a significant Cohen brothers film to me. Cause this is the Rosetta stone that made me understand every other Cohen brother film I'd seen up to that point. Like I'd always loved them, but I wouldn't put them in my top. 10 directors um right. i saw a serious man and i was like oh i get it mm. this is who you are I, everything else makes sense everything else went from like a four star or four and a half up to like a five i was like this yeah um i went also a serious man is maybe my number one cinema experience cinema going experience i went alone wow. um other people had seen it i was at uni at the time um everyone in, i was living with had seen it and we're a little bit cold in it they're like yeah it's fine so i had like a, a spare day i was like oh, i'll go check out a serious man may as well and from the opening scenes from the opening opening image of um that small uh sort of like i, I can't remember where it's set but uh, you know small sort of like eastern european village in the small yeah. like jewish community i i was just blown away it just, i felt like you know the poster for Cinema Paradiso of the little boy like staring at the screen? Yeah. That's how I felt watching A Serious Man. It just, it blew my mind. I think, it, and again, I think it's um a really beautiful tribute to stoicism. Like it starts with the the, the quote, um, receive everything that happens to you with, sub, with simplicity, which I think is beautiful. I think it's mm. a really beautiful sentiment. To then, and then to explore that through the story of Job, told through a sort of 40 something maths professor whose life is falling apart. I, I, I just, I think it's beautiful. I really love like the, the, the way Deacons shapes the suburbs. Mm. I think that the way that the, those houses are framed, I think is beautiful. I love the stark blue of those skies, like the cloudless skies. Like the, the film was kind of cloudless for the whole time until it sort of, um, reaches its crescendo um which i won't spoil for people but i just i just think it's a i think it's a perfectly told story i just yeah i think it's a funny profound um philosophical um every episode because it's quite an episodic uh episodic story it's just like uh just uh michael stolberg as larry gopnik going on a journey to find out why his life is falling apart, which is kind of, we all are, right? That's, that's what you get up. Yeah. Like, why is this, why, why is this happening? Let's fix it. And each person he encounters in this weird odyssey is, 
adds something brilliant to this uh, central exploration of why and should you ask should you ask why is there a why or should you just accept will you drive yourself mad trying to like work out the answer there's a beautiful image um that's used uh to sell it quite a lot of him standing up in front of that uh epic maths equation yes. on, on, the, on the whiteboard and it's like and this is so if you do this then that happens and that's why and it's like okay yeah but you should have written that out but that's not satisfying the why is not satisfying the thing yeah. we spend so i mean I, I say we the royal we i i'm not going to refer to myself as the royal <laughs> we for, for this point forward but i am a I question why a lot and I try and work out the patterns behind things that I try to like work out. Oh, if this is happening to me, then maybe that's a result of me having done that. Or if I do this, then maybe that will happen. And I try and assert this like rhythm and pattern into existence when it's not one. I think it's the, the film is basically saying, get comfortable with chaos. There's no order and that's just fine. And I think that's beautiful. And I think, and also, I think it's fucking cool. I think it's so cool. Like the, <laughs> the use of Jefferson Airplane is incredible. The, yes. um, the story of the Goy's teeth with Jimi Hendrix, sort of like playing in the background, the weather shot. I just, it, I had never, I just, when I, I, I just, I've never seen anything like that and still haven't. And I think it's a good system. I mean, I went back to Barton Fink. I was like, okay, I've seen something similar because the, the, the films kind of mirror each other um, mm. structurally. And I think thematically to some extent, but um, yeah, I I serious man. And you want to talk about quotability? I think I think for me, a serious man is as quotable as um, the Big Lebowski. As every every five minutes, there is a scene that uh, there's a there's a line of dialogue that just hits so hard. Um, Cy Abelman is an incredible character. For, <laughs> it's the first time I'd seen Fred. Um, I can't remember his name, Melamed, and um. Also, the film's handling on tone. I think actually, I think that's what really like struck me. The film is, you know, at its core, I'd say an existential comedy, but there is this epic tension simmering throughout yes, it. Yes, definitely. And it's sort of um, divided into three chapters. And the way those, the way we build to those chapter breaks is really unsettling in a way that I can't quite put my finger on. It's just the it's, it's a film by two filmmakers who know how to play their audience like a fiddle and i was fucking overjoyed to be played with for those an hour and 40 minutes i just think it's yeah masterpiece i i um i juggle with this for my number five spot and oh, i really i think the reason why i haven't put didn't put this as my number five is i i need to watch it more i think the second this was the second time I watched it and the first time was in the cinema and I'll be honest I was I was cold with it as well I didn't get it like you you got it it sounds like on your first viewing I didn't that's have that's all I want people to know that I got it yeah exactly uh, there you go very, I admit it hands it. up you got it I'm thick <laughs> um, I discovered Kings of Leon uh, I'm really <laughs> <fingers on> the <laughs> I um I think it's really interesting that I think you're right as well I think this seems to be the time where the it, I, I find it really interesting what you're saying there about this was the film that kind of made you realize like what else the Coens are actually doing uh, more than just on the on the surface there's there's loads of things going on in their in their films and I I think I just wasn't 
paying attention or didn't notice or wasn't looking for it the first time round. But second time round, Jesus, the stuff that is going on is is just brilliant. And like you said, the Job story, and I, I won't spoil it as well, as you said, not to a moment ago, but the ending as well and, and how that comes about, I think is is fantastic. Um, this was one to, I mentioned to you sort of off, off of here. This is one I 180'd across uh, on because first time round, I, I just didn't, I kind of just came away from it going, okay. Um, and I, I missed the trick there. I, I think I'd much, I realised and appreciated it way more second time round. Um, the performances are great. Um, it is funny in parts as well. And I think I think it's interesting you said about it's quotable as well. And I can see that because I was, as I was watching it again, there's so many funny elements in it that I think if I'd watched enough or if I'd have seen this as much as Big Lebowski, no doubt these great lines would also become just ingrained in me as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, if you if we did a list like this in 10 years time, I'd be... I wouldn't be surprised if Serious Man crept into the top five as well. I think I need to sit with it more to really fully appreciate it. Um, but yeah, there is so much going on. And I think, yeah, that's a really good shout. I, I had a feeling that as well that this might have been high on your list. Um, and for good reason. Um, I'm, it's interesting you said it's one of your sort of standout cinema experiences as well. Um, is it is that because you were so sort of swept up by it because i think those are the best film experiences and, and cinema experiences where you're just totally immersed that you forget as silly as it sounds that you're watching a film you're just so with it i guess is that it was 100 that and also it's just it's great when you go into something that you're a little bit indifferent about mm. and something happens and you're like oh no this is not what i thought it was going to be this yeah. This is speaking to uh, this is speaking directly to the, to the way that I see the world. Mm. This is a um, this is a representation of the world I yeah of the of the world I live in. My specific world that I live in. I say specific world is about a Jewish community in the nineteen sixties. <laughs> it's not my world at all. But but the but the, the truth that it's getting to, I thought was so um, it just hit me so hard, and I I love how. They've not gone for big stars. Like yeah. up until that point, the biggest name in the, in the cast was Richard Kind. So it's yeah. like they've gone for, they've sort of went to theatre actors and it gives it a distinct visual style because you're not, you, you know, you're not over familiar with these faces we're seeing. And it just gives it, I think, a, a, a rawness and a, um, like an honesty. Like I, I buy mm. that that world exists. Yeah, it's, 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 a re it's a realism, I think, that you that you said that's a good point that they aren't as at that time as big a bigger cast than say i think their previous film of burn after reading which is just full of stars mm. um so yeah i think there's a conscious choice they've made to make that yeah a, a more down-to-earth story than 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 others i think i think that's a good point yeah it's um it's yeah, a good chance masterpiece so shall we go into my number one yes go on then i think i know what it is but hit you know what it is and it's gonna be very uh, yeah yeah not gonna like it my number one um with a bullet um no contest uh is inside lewin davis 
Nice. I thought it would be. (laughs) (laughs) So you just rewatched this, right? Because I know you were cold in it. Uh, I mean, I don't want to steal your limelight, really. Um, I'm still still cold with it, if I'm honest. I think that's understandable. I can see why I, I, it's not one of those things that's like it's not like a fargo i'm like oh no this is like objectively mm. a i can see why it might not strike a chord so i'll, I'll throw in my mix first because then i, I mm. don't want to end it on a bum note but i don't think it's a bad film i just can't get into the film I, there's no mm. element for me where i'm like i'm on board with this character i don't relate to him in in any real way I find him slightly irritating in parts. I, however, <laughs> however, the soundtrack is fucking great. I mean, please, mm. Mr. Kennedy. I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't realize sort of first time round. This was again was only the second time I'd seen this. The first time being at the cinema, and I remember thinking I was so buzzing to see this film because I was very much listening to that era and genre of music at the same time, and I, yeah. I won't, I actually won't say that in case it's a relatively recent film, so I won't spoil it. But um, so I was so hyped for it. And I think that may have been a detriment as to why I didn't gel as well with the film. But um, yeah, I, I forgot that Adam Driver was in this film. And that whole scene where they're singing, please, Mr. Kennedy, is really, it was just like, uh oh. <laughs> it's so joyous. It's so Hope. Good. Yeah. It's- Outer space is <laughs> great but um yeah again i just it I, I just couldn't enter the film if that makes sense i couldn't mm. find my my way in and i just felt more of a it sounds dumb to say but as an observer and i was i was i was watching the film but i wasn't really into it if that makes sense so i yeah. i really struggled with it but but that's just me so so why um how come this is your number one? Then what's yeah? No, what's, I'm, what does I'm happy it for you? To, no, I'm happy to tell you why you're wrong. Um, it's <laughs> no, it's, it's funny you say that because like you're like um, you find the character like uh, impenetrable, uh, kind of annoying, and I'm like I have never related to a character more than Lewin Davis. <laughs> I, I did feel like wonder if this is where it's going to go. <laughs> he is my avatar. Like it's <laughs> wild. Um, no, I, but I do. I, I and I think that is a big thing for me. Like. As, because Lewin Davis um, is a prick. He's a he's a he's he's a less successful Barton Fink in that he's so wrapped up in himself and his art, and he's not really a participant in the world. And I think I relate to elements of that, or at the very least, I see Lewin Davis as a warning sign i think like that relationship with your artistry is a warning sign to me and i everything that he he uh feels in that film or and the journey he goes on is a journey that i i feel i have been on at some point in my life like inside Lewin davis to me is important um because it's almost like a lifesaver film i in like 2014 i think when it came out i was just starting uh comedy so it's a bit like unsure of like where sort of things were going I was mm. super broke I was sort of like minor little de- depression and then this film comes along about this struggling musician who is trapped in a uh, sort of 
Sisyphean life where it keeps pushing the boulder up and it keeps rolling back down. You can't seem to make a change. And I just thought that the film reflected a an emotion that I was going through that I'd never seen dramatized in that kind of way. And to me now, it's like the film is like a warm bath. It's interesting you say you can't quite connect with it. Like from the from the opening chords of uh, Hang Me and like the, the the rattle of bottles in the in the Gaslight Cafe, I'm like, oh, I'm in. This is this is a warm bath that's going to stay warm for a hundred minutes. Um, and I just think I love the rhythm of the film. I love there's this repetitiveness to it. Everything, a lot of the characters that we'll meet will will meet twice. Um, the dialogue will often zigzag back and forth. And there's this feeling of being caught in something of the world exists going on around you, which again, I think is an element of disassociation that can come as a byproduct of, um, you know, uh, depression or anxiety, where you just feel like you're looking at the world. Mm. You're just being, you're just being dragged through it. And I think that's what Leon Davis is going through. And I think the, the Coens explore that with great humor, great, um and great sensitivity and so I'm like, i've got like so many thoughts like bursting through <laughs> the, the tiny corridors of my mind and um and also I, again like, like i said with serious man i i think there is a really distinct and kind of difficult to describe tone in the film you're led on this dark journey uh, he, you know, he goes up to Chicago to audition for this guy and just comes back. But the road feels like hell. And I think that, and, that, and again, that catches something that catches that feeling of being in a train station at 11 p.m. Just thinking like, where the fuck am I? What am I doing? <laughs> while I'm like, who, like you're with some person you've just met at a gig or something. And you're just, you just, you're, you're, you're moving constantly, but your feet aren't touching the ground. And that's what I think uh, Lewin is going through. And I think that's what resonates so strongly with me. But I, I rewatched it recently. And what really impacted me, because I've always seen it's quite a, a dark film. And it's about mm. depression. It's about, yeah. you know, um, making the wrong decisions again and again and blaming something external and not your decision-making process, not your complicity in the decision-making decision process. But what really impacted me is this, um, and I won't say how it's communicated in the film, but I think what the film is getting at is that just by virtue of moving forward, of putting one foot in front of the in front of the other, of going, getting up out of bed, of 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 going about your day, of seeking anything, whether it's you know whether it's your dream, whether it's uh, you know rent money, whether it's, it's anything, just 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 going through your life on instinct is a miracle mm. and is. It's something that's to be championed. I think the film, despite having quite like a washed out color palette and, you know, and reflecting melancholy and, and sadness has a really beautiful message at the core and just celebrates the, what's I'm looking for? To merit it, the perseverance of humanity. Like we do it, we, 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 we fight through. And also there's, it, it touches on something that I think is really, frightening um uh and i talk about this sort of more from like uh sort of working in like the sort of film and comedy industry is like this idea of being great but not good enough 
and it's something I just we mentioned Amadeus earlier, and it's something that they mm. that touches on. I think it's this idea of or even not being great and not being good enough. It's being so wrapped up in yourself that you are not being honest in your work. You are you are hoping you are you're expecting your artistry to speak for you and forgetting that this is an industry. And I think that the film has that in common with Barton Fink in that you cannot expect like as much as everyone like wants to be um I don't know Dave Chappelle or you know Stanley Kubrick and just yeah. be this pure expression of artistry the next big thing like I just pick up a camera and it is it's like no this is a business this is any music film art illustration um comedy it's a business and you have to reconcile with that and I think that that's I think the Cohen's Barton Fink-y um, cynicism is present here, especially in that Mr. Kennedy scene um, through one shot. And it's when they're singing the song and it's like the, the happiest scene in the film. And there's a shot of the um, producer or the studio exec or whoever he is um, standing, in the, standing in the studio and behind a pane of glass. And it just sounds eerie. It's like, oh, mm. he's this, he this vampire. The yeah, industry is this. The like, bloodsucker, yeah. Yeah, they're the bloodsucker that's taken out all the joy. They're just looking at money. And it doesn't matter really about how good you are. It's about chance. But if you find, you know, because that's what, um, that's why, how do I finish that thought? It's not it's about chance. And make it, and, and being present. And that's what like Lewin fucks up because he's not present and he makes a huge mistake that ruins his career. Mm-hmm. Or potentially, or not necessarily ruins it, but has is going to have a negative impact on it. But if he was present, he'd be able to address that. But he's so wrapped up in himself and his own ego and what he thinks he deserves that he's missing the world as it's turning around him. And uh, and also, I think he just catches that idea of being out of step with the world. Like so, you know, sometimes like the world is like this big orchestra, and everyone's like you're walking down the street, and like everyone's jamming, and you feel like everyone knows where they should be. Everyone's moving yeah. in harmony, but like you just feel like you've got a triangle. You're like ding, 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 and like you're not fitting in. And yeah. that is his world. He is just, he's just a, he's a key late. Yeah, and I, I think, um, I, I picked it up more so this time around as well. He always seems to be on the back foot perhaps is the is the phrase i'm looking for he just seems to be mm-hmm. that either slightly late or too early he's never there at the right time to be yeah. picked up and i i guess that factors in with who we see towards the end of the film and i don't want to spoil it in case i don't know if it is a spoiler but i think it is something that i was surprised by and i think i know what you you think i you know what, what i'm talking about there um that he you know what that what he could become i guess and that is personified by by who who we see as a, a figure towards the end of the film. Um, I I was, if all all honestly, I was intrigued, really intrigued to hear you say all of this for this film because I knew this was a a played a it was a held a special place in your heart as a film, and I, I'm I'm glad to hear why. And I I I can't I obviously can't dispute that, but I'm really interested in. Uh, glad that it's hit you in a different way to to me or other people um, that a film can do that and speak to you basically in all these various different ways and you can almost relate to it on a you know a, you can relate to it on a level even though it's a different time period and and all these other factors that mm-hmm. I think that is 
one thing that's fascinating about films is it can be set in a completely different world, but these characters or what they're going through, you can relate on to on, on a different level. And I think that is, that is fascinating for me. So uh, yeah, there's, there is plenty to, to read into this as well, which again, uh, yeah, I think this was out 2013, 2014, perhaps in, in the UK. So it's after this point of what you were saying previously with a serious man that they've then been thrown into the, the Coen brothers have been thrown into the limelight as these serious directors in the sense that there's a lot more than just the surface that they're, mm. they're presenting to you. And I think this is another, uh, a step in their filmography, what they're, they're, they're adding to that, those layers that you can see in these films. So, yeah, I think that's, I think, everything you've put across is absolutely fascinating to kind of hear about. Um, and, also, and it does feel fresh. And I think as much as I think mm. the Cohen's work with Deacons is wonderful, it was great to see them work with a different cinematographer, give like a diff, the film needed a different style. It needed a different aesthetic. Um, yeah. I like how there are very few regular Cohen players here as well, I think. I think they're all John working Good, with. I think John Goodman is. He's, I don't John think he's Goodman, there it, that course, much, yeah. but he's not a. He's not a front runner, you know. For mm. example, but yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's a relatively fresh Cohen cast, I would say, which I think is in, important here as well. Uh, I just, I think it's really special, and it's. It shows to me, like at this at this stage in the career, like it's what's they've made eighteen films. I think that's mm. probably their fifteenth or sixteenth. With like this many. Um, we could have we could have done this list, cutting off with using their films before up to No Country for Old Men, and it still would have been difficult. Yes. So for them to have made No Country for Men, which I think you know made Fargo and No Country, which I think are probably the two widely accepted masterpieces, but still being able to like bash out really interesting, personal, uh, considered work like this shows that like they are truly like one of the greats and I think because of their because they do deal with some like some of the films are like silly and light and disposable yeah I, I feel they don't quite get the the respect that they do deserve yeah yeah I agree I I'm so in, I, I wasn't aware of the whole that they're working on this individual Macbeth project next but I'm really intrigued to see what they they come up with in the next couple of years um I think that's. I'm hoping the... that Ethan Cohen makes Macbeth. I want to see like a grindhouse <laughs> like double bill with the various Macbeths. <laughs> I'd love that, but I, I, I think the intrigue as well. I don't know if you share this intrigue, but it's it's just knowing what they not knowing. Sorry, what they're going to do next because they mm. do jump genres and they do jump themes as well. Is it going to be more of a light-hearted film? Because I think something like Buster Scruggs, which is their their latest one. On the surface, again, they've got, you know, uh, kind of tongue in cheek, you know, especially the, the the first book of that or first story of sorry of that anthology is this, you know, wisecracking cowboy. Um, and on the surface, it's a relatively sort of fun film. But there's also what do these each each of these stories represent? And there's there's different things going on here. So there's there's always you just don't really know what you're coming in for. I think trailers as well play a hand in that. They, mm. I know they don't necessarily have a hand in, but I think 
you perhaps go into a film thinking it's going to be one thing and actually there's a lot more to it because I, I, it, I was one thing I was meant to mention for a serious man it's almost that trailer which I did watch again after I rewatched the film I remember that at the time it was initially coming out it was put across as just a comedy film um, and and kind of just that and don't be wrong it's funny but it, I, I don't think it's a there's a lot more going on than just your standard comedy film, I think is what mm. I'm trying to say. So, yeah, I'm really intrigued just to see where they go next, if they're going to go in this sort of existential thread that you, you mentioned before, or pure comedy or or something purely serious like No Country. I, I'm just intrigued by that. And I find that is one of the elements of a fascinating director for me is just not knowing what they're going to do next, but very confident of whatever it is they do they'll do it well i think yeah well it's because they they do have something to say through their work they are philosophers uh yeah. at the core they're they're fun they're funny they're silly but they are philosophers and i think you look at the ballad of buster scruggs which i'm hit and miss on i think there's mm. some really wonderful stuff in there there's also i think a bit of dead weight but the um the segment, the girl that rattled, I think it's called with um, Zoe Kazan mm. is really profound. I think there's that speech about the nature of certainty and whether it's better to be certain going through life and that's with assurance or whether to, you know, play the cards as they lay when they come to you is mm. beautiful. That, that seen the film once and that, that really stuck with me that the rest of the film I thought was quite forgettable, but that one segment and the, the opening one, I think actually, I think, uh, incredible i think incredible and as long as they've got something to say their films are going to be um significant definitely yeah i'd agree with that brilliant okay so we've got um we covered quite a lot there which i think is great and i'm, I'm glad like i said near the start that we covered a lot of various films from their back catalogue rather than just all having the same five which would have been very tedious um <laughs> but also have seen like um, where we stand with the Coens like mine is a yeah. heavy existentialist and yours is a heavy noir one so mm. I think it's pretty true I think a, ma a man or woman's top five of Coens tells you everything you need to know about them <laughs> that's it but I think but you say that though but I think it is interesting that you can have a their catalogue is so big now that you can almost have a top five in a in a certain uh, theme now mm. that, you know they're coming up to their you know, 19th, 20th film, that there's almost a theme that you can gravitate towards, which I think you said at the start as well, it's like, where are you gravitating towards in this broad array of themes that the Coens put forward? And I think it's interesting, yeah, that we've, we've kind of, I think, overlapped only on Fargo um, as, a, as a top five film. But generally, we, we you know, where we kind of stand with, the, with their back catalogue of films, which is interesting. Um, so I thought I would quickly run down the list because I know we kind of, I chopped and changed mine as to when we spoke about it. So I'll, I'm just going to run down my top five and then perhaps you could just run down yours again. Uh, so my number five, I've got Blood Simple. Number four, Barton Fink. Uh, number three, Big Lebowski. Uh, number two, No Country for Old Men. And my number one was Fargo. Cool. Coming in at number five, I had Miller's Crossing. At four, we had Fargo. At three, the man who wasn't there. Two, a serious man. And one, inside Lewin Davis. 
brilliant. I couldn't have asked for a better better sign off there. <laughs> um, but uh, no, thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was a really good chat. That's been I, great. I was really looking forward. If, in all honesty, I was really looking forward to what you were going to say about Lewin Davis because I knew that that did you held that in such high regard. So I, I I just love to hear people talk about their personal attachment to films. So I think that was really interesting to hear. So uh, so yeah, thanks for your time today. Um, no worries. I hope you enjoyed it and. Uh, Perhaps to get you on for the Flubber review episode in the future. <laughs> Please, I would genuinely love to do a full critical analysis of Flubber. Let's do it. I'm penciling it in. <laughs> Cheers, Please, mate. I would, I would do it. Right, take it easy, man. Cheers, buddy. Speak to you soon. <laughs>